Hello, and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Someone said this, when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, he was the smartest mathematician that's ever walked on the planet. And they went on to say, if you can find anyone who knows more than Jesus, worship him, whoever that person is, but you won't find one. Jesus is omniscient. The Holy Trinity. Now there's a churchy phrase and it's not an easy one to define. Who is this that we refer to as the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the three in one? The exclusive acts of God are ascribed to each member of the Trinity. How does that work? Settle in and be ready for some answers. Dr. Corbett is in a series preaching directly on the often circumnavigated topic of God. With the third in his series, let's join Dr. Corbett now for the God Triune. All right, let's pray and ask God to speak to us no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your life, God can speak to you right now. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, Jesus said that you would come and you would lead and you would guide. Jesus also said to us that you would show us things we need to know. You would put your finger on things that need to be changed in our lives and you would shine a light where we should walk. And I pray in this time together as we open your word that that would be exactly what happens. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If someone asked you to explain one of the core teachings, if not the core teaching of Christianity, who is God, particularly related to the Trinity, how can you as a Christian hold to the Trinity? If someone said to you, I thought you guys believed in one God, but you talk about Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Isn't that three? Don't you worship three gods, not one God? How would you explain that to someone? What would you do? Because it is one of the most ancient teachings of the church. And not that the church then sets what we should believe. It's that the church recognized what we should believe. And there's a big difference there. And so when we look at one of the, in fact, after the council, the church council, where Christians met, it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, and they, they, just, they debated the big question, and that was about salvation. How do you become a Christian? How do you get right with God? And the debate was, do you need, is it a two-step process? Do you have to go from not being religious to becoming a Jew to then becoming a Christian? And for men... This actually had huge implications because it meant you went from maybe being a Greek, someone who wasn't a Jew, to becoming a Jew, which meant you had to be circumcised, and then you, had, then you became a Christian. And they debated this, and they concluded there's no need to have it as a two-step process. Anyone, anywhere, in any condition, any skin colour, any ethnicity, any heart language, any religious background could go from that to become a Christian. And for that, we all go, oh, especially if you're a man, hallelujah, that is awesome. So how would you explain this central core teaching of Christianity? The early church, after they settled that debate in Acts chapter 15, the very next time they met together, to discuss 
the issues that were essential to Christianity was on this issue. And it resulted in a group of church leaders meeting in a place called Nicaea, which is in modern Turkey today. Uh, it was then known as Asia Minor, later known as Anatolia. And they came up, these leaders, and then church leaders were known as bishops. Now, we think of bishops today as um, having you know, pointy hats and carrying a, a thing and wearing official garb. But back then, it just meant church leader. And some three, or probably, probably more than 300 met. The interesting thing was that the leader of that, the chair of that meeting was not the Bishop of Rome. In fact, the Bishop of Rome didn't even go, which is uh, very telling for those who have a, a distorted view of church history. And this is what they concluded, because there was a guy who was suggesting that Christianity worshipped one God and Jesus Christ was created and the one God who created him sent him to die in his place and, and to die for the sins of the world. And this, this church leadership met in Nicaea, Turkey and they concluded this. And this is rendered into uh, modern English but this is essentially it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. Key word, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen, and unseen. Uh, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Begotten, not made, as Karen said over communion. Not that he was created at any point, especially at that first Christmas, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. That's what incarnate means. He took on flesh. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which Catholic in the sense that it's worldwide, it's universal. There's only really one. We can, we can meet in tribes, but essentially there's just one church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's one of the most ancient, in fact, it's arguably the most ancient creed of the church. And these sentiments were in play well before they actually formalised it and agreed, it, agreed to it. So I want to look at this core teaching that many Christians 
are embarrassed about. They just don't know how to handle it. And I want to suggest to you that the Trinity is not a problem for Christians. It's the solution. It's going to solve problems, not create problems. And I hope to show you why. So let's establish what we've looked at already. God is exclusively. In other words, he does not share these qualities with anyone. He is exclusively eternal. And eternal is a dimension that God dwells in. And it means simply this. He had no beginning. He had no end. He is. And when he revealed himself to Moses, he said, when Moses said, who are you? God said, I am. Which is to say, I am the eternal one, the one who has always been. So we read in Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits where? Eternity. Whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So sometimes some English translations don't quite get the nuance of that word uh, eternity or, or eternal in the New Testament. And they confuse it with another word which sounds very, very similar. It's everlasting. There's not one of us in this room who are eternal. If you were, you'd be God. But every one of us is made, created, to be everlasting. You will live forever. The issue is where and with who. So when life, this life ends at the grave, your life doesn't end. It's just your material life will end in the sense that your body will expire, but you will continue to live. And if there's ever an age where that is beyond dispute, it's this age right now. I think of uh, a couple of people, Gary Habermas, who has done extensive work in uh, what's called near-death experiences, or as I think he calls them post-mortem experiences. He doesn't say it's near-death, he says it's beyond death. People have actually died and they have out-of-body experiences that are so vivid, so real, they didn't realise in many instances that they were dead, except that many of them experience leaving their body and they see their body on the operating table in some instances. And Dr Gary Habermas has written an extensive book where he documents this. And uh, Talbot School of Theology, there's an entire department now called uh, neurological theology and it's it's like neurological what does that got to do well neurologic is how we think and these guys are trying to figure out how can someone die and still continue to function and think and then come back to life and i've given you examples where people have died on the operating table gone through floors of a, of a hospital public hospital gone to the roof and seen things on the roof and then come back to life and reported what they saw on the roof of the hospital. And that was later verified. And Gary Habermas has that documented in his book. So we have, I think, beyond doubt now that there is something beyond the grave. So we are everlasting. And there's a kind of everlasting life that is the fullness of life. And there's a kind of everlasting life that is not. And Jesus warned about that. So God is also exclusively immutable. Immutable is kind of fits in with someone who's eternal. Immutable means does not change. 
does not change. And so we read in Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27, it says this, They will perish, but you will remain, speaking of God. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end, the psalmist says of God. And of course, we see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, the last book of the Old Testament, God declares this about himself, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed because God was loving yesterday and he's loving today. And that's an ex- that is a, a uniquely Judeo-Christian view of God too, by the way. So God is also exclusively omniscient. What does omniscient mean? Anyone know? Knows everything. All-knowing. So omni means all. All-niscient. It's the word. That's what science means, knowledge. Omniscient, see the two words. All-knowing. God is all-knowing. So we see in Psalm 33, verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. Jeremiah 20, and verse 12 says, O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. So you might remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to the to the house of Simon the, the Pharisee and as he and his disciples are there uh, Simon says to himself about a woman who's just come in and Jesus begins to talk to Simon as if he just heard everything he said in his mind how would you like to have Jesus at your dinner party he knows every thought and I know that there are some people who will say yeah but there are some things Jesus didn't know And I'd like to have a conversation with you about that because I think that is a complete misreading of when Jesus said in Matthew 24, of that day no one knows, not the angels of heaven, only my Father, not even the Son of Man. And that's because that word know in Hebrew isn't just a fact knowledge because Jesus does know everything. He's God. But there's a know in the Hebrew mindset that means to authorise And only my father authorises these events. I think Jesus was saying, and I think I can support that. Anyway, Jesus said this about God. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 to 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and uh, not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus is saying, my father knows when a sparrow dies. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows everything about you. He knows what you think. He knows what you're about to say before the words come out of your mouth. He knows where you've been. He has seen you where no one else has. He knows everything. He knows what you might do. He knows what you want to do. And he knows what you will do. Someone said this, when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, he was the smartest mathematician that's ever walked on the planet. And they went on to say, if you can find anyone who knows more than Jesus, worship him, whoever that person is, but you won't find one. Jesus is omniscient. God is also exclusively omnipotent. Omni, all, potency, which is power. 
He is all powerful. Interestingly, the first instance we have of God revealing himself to someone is God's dealings with Abram. And this is how he introduced himself to Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, and notice those capitals, capitals L-O-R-D. The, the translator, if, you, if you've ever read the, the very first bit of your Bible where the translators say, just before you read this, we need to let you know how we've taken those Hebrew Aramaic words uh, that have no English equivalent and we've made up an English equivalent. And that's one of them. And that is called the Tetra, for those taking notes, the Tetragrammaton. And it's the unpronounceable name of God. And in fact, the Jews regarded it as so holy, they said, if it's unpronounceable, we're not even going to try. But roughly, because Hebrew is a, what's called a consonantal... Am I losing anybody? It's a consonantal alphabet. That means it's got no vowels, A-E-I-O-U. You have to figure it out. I'm losing Kim. Kim's lost. I've lost Kim. This is someone with a master's degree in English. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so this name, Lord, is Y-H-W-H in English. And the closest we can come to figuring out how it's pronounced is Yahweh. Or if you don't want to, you can go Yahweh. Yahweh. So when Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh, the Lord, appeared to him and said, now he comes. So Yahweh appears, and but then he declares this to Abraham. I am God Almighty. And the Hebrew here is, if you're into Amy Grant, you'll know this. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. El Yaddai. Okay. Um, <laughs> walk before me and be blameless. So God introduces himself. The first time he's announced, this is who I am. I am the Almighty One. I am the Omnipotent One. I am the One with all power. I am almighty god is also exclusively and now this for the christian i think this is a great comfort if you are trying to hide from god this is going to cause you to stay up at night god is everywhere he is omnipresent you cannot run from god the psalmist said i think one psalm 137 where can i flee from god if i go down to the depths of hell you are there and some people think hell is hell because God's not there. No, hell is hell because God is Lord of the universe. He's, there's nowhere you can go from God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And I say for the Christian that's a comfort because no matter what pickle you get into, no matter what hole you dig for yourself, no matter how seriously you drop the ball in life, you are not a million miles from God. You are one prayer away I have cashed that check in many many times Jeremiah 23 verse 24 says this can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him declares the Lord do I not fill heaven and earth declares the Lord so the scriptures emphatically declare these things about God that this is who God is that it also declares this. It's, it's the universal truth about God throughout Old and New Testaments. There is only one true God. There's only one true God. So we read in Isaiah 45, 21. 
Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour? There is none besides me. Is there any doubt now what God is saying? He's the only one. If you are looking, if you're in the market for a God, get the real one, the true one, the only one. The scriptures emphatically declare that the Father is the true God. We can call him Father. He's referred to as Father in the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament. And as we heard recently from Donna who shared that in every instance where Jesus addressed God, he calls him Father. The only, there's only one time he didn't, and that was when he was on the cross, and he, he bore our sin and our shame and our guilt, and he cried out to God, but he didn't refer to him as Father because at that point, the Father withdrew his fellowship from his Son. The scriptures also declare emphatically that the Son is the true God. The true God. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The scriptures declare emphatically that the Holy Spirit is the true God. Now there are things that only God can do. These are exclusive to God. No one can do them. If you can do this, you are God. Creation ex, creatio ex nihilo. That's Latin for creating out of nothing. There's nothing there. Not, not a vacuum, not uh, invisible molecules of oxygen or atmosphere. Nothing. God creates out of nothing. Secondly, divine forgiveness. Only God can do that. And the Pharisees and the, and the scribes reminded Jesus when... The man came in, or it was actually, I think, put down on a mat who was lame, paralyzed completely. And he said, your sins are forgiven. And, the, and everyone went, whoa, you can't say that. Only God can say that. Now, Jesus could have said, that's why I said it. I'm God. He, but he said it this way. In fact, he kind of did say He said it this way. Well, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? This is a quadriplegic man. Rise up and walk. Which one's easier to say? I think both are pretty hard. Unless you're God. And the man stands up, rolls up his mat and leaves. Jesus declared that he was able to divinely forgive. Spiritual regeneration. You see, to become a Christian is not just a matter of going to church. It's not just a matter of saying, I'm a Christian because I was born in a relatively Christian country. You could be born in a biscuit tin and that doesn't make you a mouse. That would make you weird. (laughs) And only God can judge all humanity. Only God can do that. Because you have to, as Karen so eloquently put it over communion. The only moral authority you would have to be the judge of all humanity is for yourself not to need judgment. You are beyond judgment because you have never committed sin. 
Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, I want to take you through some of the scriptures that it's, as you look at these, you realize this, is, this sounds like Trinity. This sounds like Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So we read this, then God said, I think that God word is another word for God, Elohim, which itself, im in Hebrew, im, whenever you hear im, it, it, it's plural. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's these things called theophanies in the Old Testament. A theophany is the appearance of God. It could be a vision, it could be some kind of thing that happens where people experience God, a theophany. Here's one of them. It's in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. It involves Abram again. And the Lord appeared to him. So there's, there's that tetragrammaton. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. All right, so God's just turned up. This is the God, Yahweh, the, the God who's just turned up to Abraham. And this is what happened. He lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth, which is an act of worship, which, by the way, only God is authorized to receive worship. But the Lord appeared to him and Abraham saw three men. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 we have this and in English we, we miss it. But let me give you some of the Hebrew here. Hear O Israel the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord our God, Elohim, the Lord is one. Now we read one, we read that in English and we think um, one, two, three. But this is an interesting Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word echad. Echad. And it means this. One. One. And it's exactly the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 when it says a man and a woman, a man and his wife shall come together and the two shall be Echad flesh, one flesh. So here we have a picture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Not one, two, three. One in the sense of Echad, unity. Here we have, we could go through the rest of the Old Testament, but let's, for the sake of brevity, jump into the New Testament. This is the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, so John's just baptized him, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he, that is John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now how would... You know, just let me point out the Trinity here. You've got Jesus, the Son of God, in the water. You've got the Spirit of God coming on him like a dove. 
And then you've got the booming voice of God from heaven himself. And I'm guessing the earth kind of shook when God spoke. I wrote about this in the e-news where John the Baptist experienced this. Would that experience of God be enough for you to see through the rest of your life going, I have no doubt. I was there. <laughs> the ground shook. The waters had waves on it. I know that I heard God. I heard God. I heard the audible voice of God. And yet we see, as I wrote in the e-news, that in the circumstances that John found himself in when he was imprisoned, he had moments of doubt. That was what I called John the Baptist's D-Day. He had a moment of doubt and it shows us that despite having a religious experience, sometimes you just need to know the truth, not just have a religious experience. We read in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew where, where Christ declares this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now some people say, oh yeah, but these were added to the text much, much later on when someone invented the Trinity and all the rest of it. And that is just wrong. These are some of the most anciently verifiable texts in the Bible. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select the God series part three from our online store. As we've heard tonight, the scriptures declare emphatically that the Father is the true God, that the Son is the true God, and that the Holy Spirit is the true God. One God in three persons. We hope tonight's discussion has opened your mind to understand more of who God is. More from Dr. Corbett next week with The God Who Is. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.